This episode is brought to you by Essentia. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. Now, before we start and talk about what we're doing in the show, have you been stalking Tom Hanks? Because it looks like it from your social media, Robert. So I went to an amazing event last night, which is this recreation of the 1969 moon landing. And I'm old enough to remember, actually, the 1969 Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin on the moon. It's an amazing event. It's in this place called the Light Room. I think it's called Moonwalker. And it's you're just surrounded by these huge walls of pictures and movie of the time. I mean, oh my God, it, the, the landing on the moon was one of the big events of my childhood. It was a time of optimism and ambition. We need optimism and ambition now. And if you want to be just fired up, go to this thing. Now, the narrator, as I understand it, the original idea for this came from Tom Hanks. And he was there and he introduced it. And I did meet the astronauts and I took a selfie. And these these are people who are going to go to the moon next year. Did you know that? We're going back to the moon yes. next year. And I met the astronauts who are going back to the moon next year, which was a real, God, that was exciting. I didn't meet Tom Hanks, but my God, he exudes. I mean, he's a proper star, isn't he? So you didn't get a selfie with Tom Hanks? No, I'm a loser. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> you're not a loser. Uh, right. Let me tell you what's coming up in the show. So we are talking about billionaires. There's been a really fascinating report that's come out. So we're going to talk about the great wealth divide, but also the transfer of money and the fact it's a lot more to do with inheritance in terms of the amount of money that's been sloshed around in the billionaires world. Body Shop as well. I'm really fascinated by this company. They've recently been bought. They want to take them back to their roots, the new owners. So we'll talk about whether they can do that. And then we've got lots of questions. What's happening with the sale of the Telegraph? What's happening with Wilco? Again, another big name on the high street. And also the Premier League TV rights. Who is the winner in that? But we're going to start with billionaires, aren't we, Robert? And how much money they're making, which is probably going to make everyone feel a bit sick listening to this, isn't it, Robert? Sick or angry, maybe. But what landed on my desk this week is something called the Billionaire Ambitions 
report. You probably feel nauseous <laughs> just hearing the title. <laughs> anyway, it's um, created every year for, I think, almost a decade by one of the world's biggest banks, UBS. Uh, of course, uh, a Swiss bank. Swiss banks famously look after the wealth of the super rich. And as you know, I'm obsessed about rising inequality. And this is just one version of a rising inequality. I'm just going to give you the headlines from this report because they are jaw-dropping. According to UBS, the number of billionaires rose in the year to the spring of 2023. They rose by 7% in the number, increasing from 2,376 to 2,544. So there are 2,544 billionaires in the world, according to UBS, and their wealth, uh, this is quite an extraordinary number, increased 9% to $12 trillion. But the bit of this that sort of obsesses me is it's harder to feel, I think, uh, cross or resentful about billionaires if they are individuals who are creating amazing businesses that transform our lives. And of course, lots of these billionaires are individuals who created these enormous digital businesses that I think, I mean, look, obviously there's controversy about how much damage they've done to the cohesion of society, the likes of sort of, you know, Google and what's now called X and Facebook and the rest. But there's no question these are extraordinarily innovative businesses. But so what's really striking to me is that in terms of new billionaires, for the first time since this survey took place, new billionaires created by inheritance, mum and dad leaving them the money. And that's $151 billion inherited by 53 heirs. And that is actually more than the $141 billion of wealth created by 84 new self-made billionaires. So we are in a period where the wealth is palpably dynastic wealth. We are creating these new, extraordinarily powerful families, a bit like what happened in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution there. The thing that's really stood out to me as well in this report is about how much money is going to be passed on to kids in the future, because UBS also looked at this, didn't they? And they reckon over the next 20 to 30 years, more than a thousand billionaires are going to pass on more than $5 trillion to their children. Just to put that into perspective, that is basically double the national income of the United Kingdom being transferred to just a thousand heirs over the next 20 to 30 years. Now, in terms of inherited wealth and power, that is off the charts. It is off the charts. And also, I think we can all appreciate people working hard and coming from nothing and building up a fortune. And, and, you know, the view being, I don't want my kids to struggle like I have. But actually, I think it's important that everyone does their own thing in life and creates their own wealth. And that, you know, I've I've got family friends who are part of a, a massive rich family and their kids are miserable because they live in their father's shadow and they don't have any motivation in life for anything. I'm not saying we should feel sorry for the billionaire kids, by the way. But I just think it doesn't do anyone any favours to pass down enormous mounds of money to kids. This should be like a cap. I know I'll be totally hated for this because I'm basically suggesting a massive inheritance tax. But I think that there should be some type of cap and it should be, you know, if you get past a certain amount, you're not allowed to pass it on to your kids. You have to put it into something useful and you have to do something with it that can help economies or help the 
ailing health service or something like that, which I know sounds all a bit woke and a bit lefty and all that jazz. But still, I don't think it benefits anyone to pass down huge sums of wealth. And I mean, you you must meet people like this all the time who are totally loaded and just don't have any point in life. Well, I, th- I think we should sort of break this down into a sort of couple of different themes. One of them is the power that goes with such wealth. And if you just look in America, the presidential election is hugely about how much money a candidate gets and the power, therefore, of individual families to promote a Donald Trump, for example, if they happen to think he is you know, the right kind of future for America. Many would say that's a terrifying thought. Or a Joe Biden. The power of these families to influence political outcomes is just off the charts, you know, particularly actually in a world where AI and digital media can influence outcomes through creating fake stories, as it were, and tendentious targeting. So that's one aspect of it. And then the other thing, which I thought I was really, my sort of jaw slightly fell at this, is UBS, this big Swiss bank, interviews these billionaires. And one of the things that's really striking is the generation that makes the money is quite often like Bill Gates, really motivated to do good things with the money. As we know, Bill Gates created an enormous charitable foundation and has spent a fortune vaccinating people, particularly in in developing countries, to protect them against a whole range of really horrible, life-threatening diseases. But the younger generation, according to UBS, have much less interest in using the money for good, using the money for philanthropy, and are much more intent on just hanging on to the wealth. And, you know, so in terms of putting the money to good use, when it gets transferred down the line, a lot of the money just seems to be all about propping up an extreme lifestyle. And I think we shouldn't be surprised by it any of that. You only have to go through history. You know, look at the history of this this country. You know, you normally get, I don't know, for example, around the powerful families in this country, you know, you get some individual who's a great leader, becomes a duke, and then his kids all become wastrels. It's, you know, people just run out of that energy and ambition when the money gets handed down and the power gets handed down. Well, so I've been watching this family I know, this super rich family I know, from afar for years now, because I know the kids. And I don't want to obviously give away who it is, but the the one who's worked their way from nothing and built up this massive, massive company, he doesn't want his kids to do charity stuff. He's like, I want you to achieve the way I have. And even though they do do some charity stuff, so he's like, I want to see you attain things in business ways. I always say to the mutual friend we have, if it was me and I was that loaded, I'd just do loads of stuff for charity. And we were talking about how that's not counted as achieving stuff in life because it's it's easy to do charity work when you're rich which is totally fascinating sort of takes me back actually to something you said which is actually in some ways in a sort of emotional psychological sense it's horrible being the child of one of these great entrepreneurs you know succession is sort of a documentary in some ways of what it's like to be the child of one of these sort of driven megalomaniac you know billionaire creators i've actually been in a room with an enormously wealthy self-made individual with the billionaire's son and the way that this son was just shouted at and bullied in front of all of us it was horrible it was absolutely horrible so i think nobody listening 
to you know you or me talk about billionaires should think that we are remotely i'm certainly not remotely resentful or jealous of the lives they lead because my goodness a lot of these people as i say are bullied they're unhappy but i'm talking about the children now i mean it's a nightmare yeah, there's some great examples as well about, because, you know, this is a lot to do with the kind of Nepo baby thing as well. And there's some great examples in business where people don't think the kids are up to it either. So, you know, the huge fashion company, Inditex, you know, it was started back in the 70s by this Spanish entrepreneur called Amancio Ortega. This is the company that owns brands. The big one is Zara. And then they've got Bershka, Massimo Dutti, Pull and Bear, Stradivarius, all the kind of big high street fashion brands that are doing really well. So anyway, that when this guy was in his 80s, he, he wanted to retire. And the business was kind of handed to his daughter called Marta. So Marta Ortega Perez, she's called. And she was like in her late 30s at this point. But when it was handed over, the share price fell because everyone was like, nah, she's what she was known for at that point was being photographed in all the kind of Spanish magazines. And, you know, she was a real society girl. She was a show jumper. So they kept her calling her the show jumping socialite. But actually, now she's about a year and a half in, the company's doing really well. And everyone's now saying, actually, she's, you know, widened it a bit in terms of what they're doing is more open and transparent than Amancio was. And it's fascinating how the initial thing was she can't do it because she's, she's just his daughter. And actually, what she says is she grew up in the business, you know, as a kid, she saw her mum and dad grafting with this, you know, what started as a, you know, essentially just a textiles business grew into this massive company. She worked in the Zara and Bershka stores in London when she was at uni and it's really interesting that how they kind of essentially groom their kids for success in it but people can be have this nepo baby negative view of oh they're never going to be able to do it so can we just talk for a second about who these billionaires are so forbes is always the sort of compiler of the richest people in the world has been for donkey's years. And in its latest survey, sort of six and a half of them are the sort of giants of the sort of digital space. So dominated by these huge tech giants. But, and this is really interesting, in the last official survey, the number one, not an American business, not a tech business, but the luxury goods business, LVMH and you know Bernard Arno and family with net worth of 211 billion dollars i mean off the charts and i know that you've been taking a bit of an interest in the arno family haven't you yeah i'm fascinated by this business and i also think this is the real succession family this is the roys in terms of the setup here so just to give you a little flavor so at the helm of this is a 74 year old entrepreneur businessman called bert i'm going to do the english pronunciations by the way so bernard arnold i know you'd say it in the uh, French we're going to say bernard arnold just for yeah, thank you those, those of our listeners who care <laughs> you about you do that things. and i'll do the other yeah exactly so he has got this massive company as you say called lvmh it's got something like over 70 fashion and cosmetics brands in it, Louis Vuitton, Sephora, Tiffany, Moet Hennessy, which I found out is pronounced Moet, not Moet, as everyone thinks, because once I hosted the Verve Clique or Business Woman of the Year Awards and was told quite clearly it's German, it's Moet. So, so anyway, so this guy, Bernard, started as an engineer and he had a rich dad because his dad had been a civil engineer, had this big construction company, and he basically used some of the money from his dad's business to buy this struggling French textile company. And in that French textile company, 
was a little known brand called Christian Dior. And that was what he had his eyes on. He really wanted to own the house of Dior. So he managed to create an investment company that then bought this, it was called Boussac, this company. And the, the French government at the time were quite worried about this business. And so they kind of helped him to buy it on the proviso that he, you know, looked after the company. But interestingly, when he did get it, he axed loads of jobs and the French government kicked off. But he said, hey, I only ever agreed to make it profitable, which is what I have done. But like thousands of people lost their jobs. And what he's been really good at is basically gobbling up lots of European luxury houses that have often been weakened because of family dramas within them, because of the owners being a family business where all hell's broken loose. And then he comes in and snaps them up and basically makes them more profitable. So he's done all that. But at the same time, He's got five kids. Yeah, so what's it like being the child of Bernard Arnault? Tell me. Yeah, so he's got five kids and they range in ages from 48, and this is Delphine, who's the eldest, down to 25, which is Jean. And they have all got massive jobs in the company. Are they any good? Are they talented? Well, this is where it, you can easily be masked by a big company. So it's really hard to work out if they're any good at it or not. So you've got like Delphine heads up Dior, which is like the second biggest fashion brand in Louis Vuitton. You've got Antoine, who's the CEO of Baluti. Again, another big brand in there. Alexandra is in charge of products and communication at Tiffany. Then you've even got like Frederick. He's the CEO. He's only 29. He's the CEO of Tag Heuer, the posh watches. Then Jean, 25. He's in charge of watches in Louis Vuitton. So they've all got massive jobs. But And, you know, I suppose there'd be lots of people going, oh, well, they've just been handed these jobs. But they've also have been trained from like the age of 10. So they recently did an interview because they're sponsoring the Paris Olympics next year. So they don't often do interviews. So they did this big interview about sponsoring the Olympics and what that's going to mean. But in it, they talk about how from the age of 10, they were taken into the shops to see kind of the questions that Bernard would be asking the staff. They have to have meetings every month, kind of Roy style, Roy family style. And do we know if they're aroused? We're talking about the Roys and succession. So do we know if, is there a plot about who eventually succeeds Bernard? Well, you know? it's looking like Antoine at the moment because he's just been moved from being CEO of Baluti and everyone says they're now positioning themselves for him to take over. So Bernard is 74 and they originally in their company policy at LVMH had it that you had to retire at 75 but he's lobbied the board to change that to 80 because he obviously and that just makes me think he doesn't think they're ready yet well if you look at Murdoch Murdoch I think is now over 90 isn't he I mean I'm amazed that Bernard thinks he hasn't got years to go interesting yeah and and they're fascinating because they don't you know you ask about fights and stuff they give none of that away they're all in like quite often navy Christian Dior suits you know all kind of quite regimented <laughs> they all stand there for these photos it's often only Delphine who's like in something else but still it'll be Dior so they're kind of like you know come out in procession and even when it was the Paris Olympics big meeting recently they were all there again in like their matching suits and like a uniform so what I would say is if you look at the LVMH story you know it is clearly a dynamic business it's clearly created lots of jobs I think arguably it looks to me as though it's been a success for the French economy you know significant exports so you know it has created value not just for this this family but also for France as a whole and I think we should also point out to our listeners it is a way bigger company than any British company it's massive right talking about the succession it sort of brings us on to this issue of what happens 
to the dynamism of a of a business when the founder either passes on to children or just the founder disappears. I mean, one of the businesses that you and I were absolutely gripped by in its sort of earlier days was a business called Body Shop, which was massive in the UK, particularly in the 90s. It was absolutely massive. And its leader, or its two leaders, there were Gordon and Anita Roddick. But Anita Roddick became this sort of public figure in the UK. But it's really lost its its way recently. Tell us you know, the story about how, in a sense, a family business like that can lose its way. Yeah, because um, this time of year, I have a lot of nostalgia about Body Shop because that was what my luxury presents were for Christmas was the white musk set. You know, you were either a Jubilee or a white musk kid, you know, a teenage girl growing up. You knew you were, you, you felt classy if you had one of those scents and you were spritzing that all over yourself at school. So, you know, I have a real kind of fondness for Body Shop in that sense. And also what they did when they came out, and as you say, it was founded in the 70s by the Roddicks in Brighton. And what's interesting is they straight away were very much on the view that you shouldn't use products tested on animals. And also with their packaging and things, there's a story that actually their ethical view around packaging also was because they didn't have enough packages themselves to bottle up the stuff to begin with. So they did a lot of recycling and then they saw that people bringing back bottles really helped on that ethical side of stuff. But they were definitely ahead of their time on that. They did this whole campaign around animal testing in the 90s. They had these t-shirts, which had all these slogans on about not allowing animals to be tested on. And then there was a ban on animal testing for makeup and its ingredients, which came in in 1998. So they were they were seen as being ethical, but also a product that lots of people wanted And influential is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And influential. But then there was this whole kind of drama when the Roddicks sold the company to L'Oreal in 2006. Another giant French company and, and another very successful French yeah. company. So she sold the body shop to L'Oreal for over £600 million back in 2006. And she got really slagged off at the time because everyone's saying, oh, you've totally copped out here because L'Oreal did do some animal testing on things because of the EU rules. So so just to be clear, to remind people, so animal testing was banned in the UK, but it was still allowed in other parts of the EU, was it? Exactly. So therefore, everyone was saying, well, hang on, you, you know, you've, you've sold the brand and sold your soul here. And to be honest, since then, the company's not done particularly well. In fact, it did so badly, L'Oreal ended up selling it to this Brazilian uh, company called Natura. But we should remind people, of course, that Anita Roddick herself, who I think did initially agree to work, continue working for the business at L'Oreal, she died about a year after the deal, didn't she, in, in really horrible circumstances? Yeah, she did. And so L'Oreal were, were running the business. It wasn't doing particularly well. They ended up selling it to this Brazilian company called Natura. But interestingly, they paid well over the odds for it and apparently that was because one of their founders had this real sentimental nostalgia about the body shop brand and so bought it for that reason they bought it for 870 million and they've just sold it in the last few weeks for 207 million so it just shows you how much that has fallen by and in last year they had their worst year in the entire history of body shop I mean, when i when, when i was originally aware of this business and i haven't sort of been immersed in it for a few years but it, it had quite an interesting model not only did it promote itself essentially by saying you know these are good for the world products 
they also had a franchise model. In, they were basically a cosmetics company. We all thought of them as being retailers, but actually they owned very few of the stores, as I recall. I don't know if that model changed, but they, were, again, were an early pioneer of, of franchising. Yes, they were. But that, that was also part of the problem, I think, in terms of how they've done, because a lot of the foreign business was franchised. So they were selling the goods at wholesale prices. So even though the goods were you know, still selling well in China, because again, you know, the Chinese love the British brands, they're not really seeing the benefit of that because they're, you know, they're selling for the wholesale prices. So they've had a really tough time. But at the same time, you know, they're now with this new owner, which is a private equity company called Aurelius, they're going on about how they want to go back to this 90s campaign vibe. So they've started bringing out these t-shirts again, which say forever against animal testing. Um, and they're campaigning for the, the rules to change again, because in 2019, there was a reversal on the rules about animal testing in the UK to match the EU rules, which means that some testing does happen again now in the UK. So they've partnered with like Cruelty Free International and all this. And you might think, oh, maybe this will save them. Uh-uh. It's not going to because their rivals, Lush and Rituals, who are both doing incredibly well because beauty is a booming industry. It's worth something like $400 billion every year they're already doing all this like lush for example have already been you know they're, they're already well ahead with the not testing on animals but on top of that you very rarely need packaging for lush products because they've done it on the basis of they make a lot of things in bars like shampoos in bars or shower gels in bars so therefore they just need a bit of like paper around them in order to buy them you know, we've seen them massively grow. They're still not as big as Body Shop because Lush has something like just over 100 stores in the UK and Body Shop has 250 stores. But they're already, Generation Z are already like thinking, hang on, Body Shop, why are you, you know, Lush and Rituals are already doing all this. Why are you banging on about animal testing now? That, that's like from the 90s era. We're already there on all that. And so I don't think it's going to work. If you look at somewhere like Lush, you recognize the smell of it before you even get to it. <laughs> Lush shop, but their shops are exciting. They're very hands on. You can test the bath bombs when you're in there. They're very colourful. Their website, again, is very easy to use. Where's the price point of Body Shop compared to Lush? Are they roughly the same price point? Well, yeah, no. So, again, Body Shop's a little bit more expensive as well. So, if you're looking at something like, I don't know, like a, a body butter type thing, you're paying about a tenner in Lush and you're paying nearly 20 quid in Body Shop. So, there's a big difference. They're a bit cheaper, Body Shop, on shampoos and stuff like that. But I was talking to a beauty therapist about this and we were saying, you know, do you think Body Shop's going to ever get us back? Because um, the beauty therapist was saying, actually, the, the makeup seems to be a bit more exciting than it has been in the past. They're doing more multi-use products, which is, again, what Generation Z love. What is that? I don't know what that is. So it's where, like, you might get a blusher, but it's also doubles up as a lip balm and an eyeshadow. So it, that's the thing people want now. They don't want to buy 10 different products. They want, like, these kind of multi-use. And so Body Shop are doing that in more... Um, you know, useful colours. Uh, my makeup artist was telling me all about that. But again, it's just, they're kind of behind the curve in terms of what the others are. They, they kind of fall into the middle of nowhere. Like rituals is more seen as, that's the type of thing, you know, I would buy as a for a friend as a present is a nice ritual set because it's got that luxury tag on it, but not a ridiculous price. Lush is more that, you know, the younger kids and they love all the bath bombs and and things like that and all the different spritzes and like I say it's all exciting colours and, and the website's really good the Body Shop website is pretty rubbish too and that's again the private equity company said they want to improve things there but they've got a long way to go I mean I suppose what I would say and I guess it's an appropriate moment to wrap up because I suspect we'll be coming back to this after the break 
is it's always amazing to me how enduring a brand will be even when it goes through a period of the products just not being that exciting or the marketing not being that exciting. And I'm assuming that the new owners are basically just taken the view that for the kind of money they've spent, what they've bought is a very, very visible brand. And if they've yeah. got the right leadership, and in the end, you know, when you're turning around a bit, it gets back to our original conversation. It's all about the drive of, a, of an entrepreneurial leader. And Body Shop is not quite a startup. But you're basically saying it's got this amazing name, but there's just so much that needs to be fixed. And I mean, it will be incredibly interesting to see whether this is a brand that can be revived. And maybe it can, because like you say, it's such a a strong brand name in terms of British business history and on the high street. Certainly people of a certain generation, you know, will have very positive feelings about it. Right. Should we have a break then? Perfect. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. Uh, Loads of questions coming in again, Robert, which is great to see. So we're going to try and get through as many as we can in this part of the podcast. So first of all, should we talk about the Premier League TV rights? That's been in the news all week and we've got a question on that. So we've got a question from Stella Schmidt. What do you make of the new Premier League TV deal? A win for the Premier League or for Sky and the broadcasters? Yeah. So just to give you the figures on this, because everyone's been talking about them. So this is a deal, £6.7 billion, which has been paid for the Premier League rights. This is shared between Sky and TNT Sports. In terms of how this compares to the last time the deal was done, which was 2018, that was £5.1 billion. And that was shared between Sky, BBC, TNT, Amazon. So lots of people have been talking about who this is a win for. Because interestingly, when you look at the detail of this, this new deal is a four-year deal and includes more games than it normally would. So it's 270 games instead of 200 games. And obviously the contract's for longer now. And there's fewer broadcasters in this as well. They reduce the number of deals being offered, the packages. So what, So this is four years versus three years, is that right? Yeah. So this is four-year deal instead of a three-year one, and you're getting more games per year in the price. So, I mean, I talked to quite a lot of sort of TV and football executives about this, and it's safe to say they have a sort of mixed view. I mean, on the one hand, simply by talking about the length of the deal as we have, you know, the massive increase in the number of games, it's obviously the case that the price per game, and obviously the case, it just is the case that the price per game has come down. Um, And that's why some people have said that this shows that the sort of boom in football TV rights is over, that the broadcasters are paying considerably less, or Sky is paying considerably less per game than it has been paying. Let me give you the numbers on that as well, because per game, the cost of this new deal is £6.2 million per game versus £8.5 million in 2018. So that's why one very senior influential TV executive said to me, this is an amazing deal for Sky that it absolutely reinforces its dominance in this area. Uh, And commercially, from their point of view, it is brilliant. And that has led some people to believe, you know, it's not so great for the Premier League. But, I mean, the interesting question on that is, if this were, in some senses, to undermine the commercial revenue of individual 
clubs because fewer people would go to games. You know, because if more games are being shown on telly, will fewer people go to games? Well, that would definitely be a bad thing for the Premier League. But it's not obvious that that is going to happen. And this is an enormous sum of money. It's conceivable that it's uh, this is a deal which is both brilliant for Sky and not so really bad for for the Premier League, particularly in a world where live events are somehow not the great excitement. I mean, live events still matter, but they're not the great excitements in television as they were. And given what's happening in TV advertising, which is, you know, doing terribly at the moment, you know, they, they must be pleased. Maybe it's not so bad for the Premier League. I think there's a slightly nuanced judgment that one has to make. And then I guess the final really interesting thing about all of this is we'd all been expecting over the last few years for the streamers to get big in Premier League. And, you know, Amazon dipped its toe in the water. It has been showing some games. In fact, my beloved Arsenal versus Luton was on Amazon last night. But it is interesting that this deal is just in terms of the live games at Sky and TNT. And none of the streamers, none of the streamers have got any games at all. So it turns out they are not transforming this market. Yeah, they're not interested. And I wonder why they are staying away from it, though. They obviously don't think there's the worth in it. I think it is simply that they've got a business model, which, I mean, it's, I mean, some would say it is slightly challenged at the moment and some of them, they're all trying to cut costs. But they, they've got a business model that is, um, in terms of attracting large numbers of viewers, not had to depend on sport. And I, I think they just take the view that 6.2 million for what, two or three hours of television, that is a big cost per hour of television. And even though these businesses spend fortunes on their series, you know, 100 million quid on a series, you know, when you then average that out across all the hours of television across the world, it probably for them feels like a better value model. Well, it's interesting though, because obviously streaming services aren't known for their live stuff. But I know, for example, Netflix is really interested in going into the to the live events market and they've got various pilots that they're working on at the minute. So it might be something we come back to. Also, the other thing I wanted to say is this is for the domestic rights, isn't it? It's not the international ones. So there, there will be more money to come for the Premier League. Yeah, and the Premier League is a big international business now. Uh, so as you say, it's not the end of the story. But I remember, I mean, you know, going all the way back to the 90s when Murdoch who'd made colossal losses in satellite television, did this pioneering thing of spending that initial fortune, and it looked like a fortune at the time, on buying rights to live games. It totally transformed the prospects of Sky. Without that Premier initial Premier League deal, Sky would never have been the success that it turned out to be. And it is fascinating all those years later, that Sky still dominates this market. It's an, it's, it's, in terms of longevity of a business model, this is extraordinary. Yeah, every football match I've ever been to, it's always Sky. That's the telly that's on there, isn't it? It's always Sky Sports. You know, I always think of Jess Stelling, Chris Kamara. You, you know, they're the people you think of when you're chatting about football and sport on the telly. And I should point out that the owner of the podcast uh, company we work for, I think quite a lot of people would say you think about when you think about football on the telly. What was his name again, Steph? I've forgotten his name. Uh, I've forgotten. I don't yeah, know. I, I can't um, remember his name either. I don't know. I think he was quite a good England player. But yeah, it was a long time ago. It never escapes me. <laughs> yeah, I love match of the day too. And BBC's still got the rights for match of the day, haven't they? Which they'll be very pleased about. Anyway, um, 
Adam's asking about the sale of the Telegraph. What's going on with the sale of the Telegraph? It's something we talked about a few weeks ago on the podcast, but Robert, bring us up to speed. Well, there's been an absolutely fascinating development this week where Lloyds Bank, which effectively was in control of the Telegraph and the Spectator, uh, magazine, got its money back. You'll remember that the background is that the business was owned by the Barclay brothers. They had 1.1, 1.2 billion pounds worth of debt with Lloyds Bank. They weren't servicing the debt. They hadn't been servicing the debt for years. And eventually Lloyds Bank ran out of patience and kicked out the Barclays and said, we're taking control and we're going to sell this business from under the Barclays. They started an auction, but the Barclays decided to see if they could, in a sense, go round the back of the auction, which they did do. And they came across a US-based media investor called Redbird, backed by Abu Dhabi. You know, huge amounts of Abu Dhabi state money. And so they organized for Redbird IMI and Abu Dhabi to repay Lloyd's, uh, and Lloyd's uh, reported this earlier this week, actually, much to Lloyd's surprise, I have to say the executives there were genuinely surprised because they really didn't think the money would would arrive. They got their 1.1, 1.2 billion pounds back. And this was a remarkable thing for Lloyd's. Uh, I'm going to go get onto the future of the Telegraph in just a second, but this is a remarkable thing for Lloyd's in itself because they had actually written down the value of that debt. They'd buy about half a billion pounds. They'd incurred a loss on lending to the Barclays of about half a billion pounds, which they're now going to have to write back. So there will be an exceptional profit for them. And some nice bonuses, maybe. <laughs> it's the weird aspect of, of banking uh, that if you recognize a loss on a loan and then you get the money back in full, that then becomes a profit. So they're going to have an exceptional profit of about 500 million in their next results as a result of getting this money. It's amazing that one deal can have that much impact, isn't it, on a bank's balance sheet? Profit, profit and loss account. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's amazing. Um, anyway, the really big, interesting question in terms of the media landscape is who will now control the Telegraph and the Spectator? And the reason this is still an open question is because Abu Dhabi, uh, well, Redbird, which is a media group, wants to kick out the Barclays and wants to run the thing, right? But because a huge amount of the money comes from effectively the Abu Dhabi government, the Abu Dhabi state, it's highly controversial. This idea of a British newspaper effectively being controlled by another country, another government, Abu Dhabi, it's hugely controversial. So the culture secretary, Lucy Fraser, has asked Ofcom, the media regulator, and she's also asked the Competition uh, and Markets Authority to investigate whether this this sale to Redbird and Abu Dhabi is in the public interest. And the big issue, and which is the one that Ofcom is is looking at, is whether you know the editorial newspapers aren't impartial, but whether it's in the public interest that another government should own such an influential newspaper. So could it mean then that they're not allowed to run it and then they just lose all this money? So let's get on to that because this is really fascinating, as you say. So I've talked to members of the government, actually having lunch with the minister the other day, who said he was just deeply unhappy at the idea 
that a government could own a newspaper like The Telegraph? Because, you know, in an extreme case, would The Telegraph be allowed to report on something that was against the interests of Abu Dhabi? And that is the concern about a government owning a a newspaper. So this minister, and indeed, you know, various bankers I know connected to the deal, basically think it's touch and go. We'll know, we think at the end of April, whether Abu Dhabi and, and Redbird are allowed to control this thing. If they are not allowed to control this thing, right, then Abu Dhabi and, and, and Redbird have got a choice. And it's not a very nice choice, you would argue. They, what we all think they're going to do is start the auction again, right? They, they will then have to sell the Telegraph as effectively the controllers of this business because they've provided this loan to, to, to the Barclay brothers. That they will start the auction again for the Telegraph and the Spectator. But the thing that most bankers tell me is they don't believe that. Abu Dhabi would get its full 1.2 billion pounds that they would, that, you know, because they don't think the businesses are worth that much, that they basically paid this premium because they want to control the Telegraph, but nobody else will pay as much as that. So, you know, they've made this huge gamble and they could end up losing hundreds of millions of pounds really quite rapidly. And if they don't do that, they would have to keep the Barclay brothers in control. The Barclay brothers, who, according to Lloyd's, did not run this business, you know, in a successful way. So this is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, hey, that's going to be potentially an expensive time for them. Hey, that's a, a hell of a lot of money that they could lose that rests in the hands of this decision that's made by the government. And I think just to remind people, if they were forced to sell, we are pretty sure that the Daily Mail group is still interested in buying the Telegraph. I know from contacts with Murdoch and News UK that they would be desperately keen to buy The Spectator, which is sort of now regarded as the sort of trophy asset within the group. I mean, it, you know, it best makes very small numbers of millions of pounds of profit, but it's probably valued at £100 million. It's very interesting that that's the brand that, that seems to be desirable. But then there is this interesting character called Paul Marshall. I think he's a billionaire. He made an absolute fortune out of a hedge fund that he set up and called Marshall Waste. And he is the backer of a pretty successful digital sort of news comment website called Unheard. He's a big backer of GB News. He is desperate to own the Telegraph, and he's been one of those people campaigning to keep the Telegraph away from Abu Dhabi. Among the sort of soap opera kind of stories about an asset sale, this is a big soap opera. A fascinating one that I'm sure we'll come back to again as well. Should we have a look at another question now? I'm going to ask you a question about one of your favourite subjects, because we've talked about it a bit since we launched, which is Wilco, a store that we both used to love that got into serious problem went bust. I think, well, t- bring us up to date with where we are on, on Wilco. Ali wants to know, should Wilco have closed during COVID? And would they still be here now if they had closed? Yeah. So just as you say, to remind everyone, Wilco went into administration in August this year, millions of, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds of debt with a 50 million pound pension black hole as well and 12,000 jobs lost. And the taxpayers ended up having to subsidise something like 40 million in redundancy payouts. So this was a big failure. But in answer to Ali's question, I don't think this is about COVID. 
I think this is about a company that's lost its way. A bit like Body Shop, to be honest. Wilco's become a company where it didn't know where it was. So it started off as a hardware store in the 1930s. And, you know, that was the place you went to for your hardware stuff. You know, it was really one of the places you thought of when you think, all right, I need to, I'm doing some DIY at home. I'm going to go to Wilco's to get some cheap stuff to be able to do it. But then as we've seen these kind of discount retailers grow, the the Wilco's has fallen behind. So B&M, The Range, uh, your Poundlands and all those variety of businesses have all really thrived, particularly in the cost of living crisis, whereas Wilco's didn't. And so we were talking earlier about Body Shop just about clinging on, thanks to the strength of its brand name. The the Wilco brand name not good enough? Well, you know, this is interesting. So if we were talking about this a few weeks ago, I would have said, I don't think it is good enough. But the range, the owner of the range, Chris Dawson, he has bought the brand, the website and the intellectual property. And has recently said he's going to open 300 stores, actual Wilco stores. And he started doing it. So I think there's about 50 that we know of, uh, you know, in terms of know the timings of when they're going to open. And some of them already have been. And I mean, we don't know when exactly these 300 are going to open, but this is what he's saying he wants to do. And that shows he thinks there's great strength still in the Wilco's brand name because the other companies that have bought up some of the stores, like Poundland bought quite a few and B&M, they're all changing them into their own branded shops. But Chris Dawson with the range is keeping them as Wilco's, which suggests that he thinks there is value in this brand. In a way, I'm not surprised because, you know, I was struck when it originally got into trouble, the number of people who said to me how incredibly fond they were. It's sort of odd the way that with some stores that we like, it's almost, you know, when they go bust, it's almost like the death of a friend for some people. It is quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah, but this is the thing that does my head in, though, when people say, oh, I really loved Woolies. I used to get me pick and mix there or... I really loved HMV. I used to get my records there. But when was the last time these people went into these stores when they were really struggling? They didn't. And that is the problem. We can be all nostalgic about brands and, you know, like I was earlier about Body Shop. But I I haven't bought anything from these shops for for years and years. And the last time I went into a Wilco, which was just before it went bust, actually, there was barely anything on the shelves. And I was like, I don't even know where we're at here with what this is. So, In other words, what we're really saying is, you know, a brand is one thing and it's good sort of chat in the pub with friends about how we miss Woolies Pick and Mix. But in the end, if as an owner and a manager, you're not providing a service, you know, business is going to die. It's as simple as that. Let's see what Chris Dawson does with it, though, because I'm quite excited about this. I think, you know, he's made a great success of the range. So let's see what happens. Thank you again for all the questions. Email is restismoney at gmail.com and our social media handles are where you can send us questions too. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. See you next week. <laughs>